You're listening to First Film First, a podcast where filmmakers describe their experiences of making their first feature film. We'll discuss those experiences in the context of their artistic development and their subsequent career opportunities. Join me as we take a deep dive back in time to see how fledgling filmmakers came to their decisions. Welcome to podcast number five with cinematographer Ben Fordsman. Ben's feature debut is the brilliant St. Maud coming to cinemas, hopefully sometime soon, whenever the pandemic decides to ease and we're all allowed back into public places. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks, Chris. Delighted to be here. So as a break from tradition, Ben's feature debut is just about to come out rather than came out 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it was basically set to come out in theatres in April, basically worldwide, because A24 for US and Studio Canal for everywhere else. The timing was, yeah, basically uh, hampered (laughs) by uh, the pandemic and it it got a a short release. Have you seen it? Have I seen the film? Yeah, I've seen it about three times. That's why we're that's why we're talking, Ben. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I saw it when it came out in June. Right, okay. It came out for like two weeks when the yes. cinemas reopened. Exactly, yeah. And then I've watched it a couple of times. Luckily it's on the BAFTA portal. Oh, of course. So, yeah. yeah. So congratulations for your Biffa nomination. Thank you. It's thoroughly deserved. It's an incredible piece of work. Thank you. And so today's conversation is, I guess, a way of speaking to someone who's fresh off of that first experience. How did you get involved with the project? Had you worked with Rose before? Uh, No, the script actually came through uh, my agent, Hannah Phillips at Lux. And before that point, I'd, I mean, I I shot a few episodes and ended the end of the fucking world Netflix TV show, but never really a feature was something I was always kind of, uh, I suppose, gagging to do from day one and I'd read a few which never really took much interest in but yeah it was just like a, a kind of a very short script but felt like a slow burner in a way but um, at the time I was shooting commercials and I was at this style where I was underexposed and everything and creating quite sort of gothic looking images and it raised a few eyebrows with kind of agency because it wasn't really <laughs> you know didn't really kind of fit with what they wanted to do and then Suddenly the script came across that kind of, I suppose, felt like the right kind of darkness and the right kind of story. And and also essentially felt like the right kind of film that I personally would like to watch. So, yeah, I sort of agreed to have a meeting with Rose and over two or three meetups, we decided to work together after we kind of realised both of our styles and interests and tastes were aligned. Your commercials are, I guess, that sort of, I don't know, gothic naturalism would be a thing. The two that I really love are the this year's McDonald's commercial, The Gift, but also a commercial you shot probably 18 months ago, which is the Department of Education. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a real piece of social realism beauty in a commercial. So how did you find the transition or or like you say, had you already mentally started to move more narratively in both your commercial work and then looking for your first feature? I think I've always had the mindset to work narratively for every project because I, I just can't understand a story or a concept without there being some kind of narrative or story to follow. It, even if it's like a music video or a commercial or, you know, short film, my discussions with the director is always about, you know, what is the story here? And I guess the thing is... On short form stuff like a commercial, it's 30 seconds, if you're lucky, 60 seconds. Those kind of like long, no matter how good your performances are or 
uh, how much narrative you build in at pre-production and the pace uh, on the day may feel like you're making a story. It's always going to be cut down to nothing. You know, these like long tracking shots always just going to get a snippet and it just never had... I don't know, I guess I was not feeling fulfilled as a storyteller on, on all the short form stuff. And I think that, you know, I got into this industry because I love films. Uh, and as much as I love making music videos and commercials, you know, I was always yearning to work on film in any capacity. And I sort of discovered and I found my way as a cinematographer, but that was always the plan. And I felt like I'd really got to the point where it was, I, I really needed to work on a film. And I would have at some point maybe had uh, I don't know, maybe just chosen a script I wasn't into, but I was lucky that St. Maud just did come at the time where I I read it and I was I was hooked. Yeah, a serendipitous mutual adventure for you all. Yeah. So what were those first meetings like? What did you take to Rose in terms of references or in terms of conversation? How did that shape up? Yeah, I think the, the first few meetings were just kind of like feeling each other's tastes. Uh, and it was just like, I guess I, I was quite well prepared. I'd brought like a mood board of images and references and um, lots of questions and I actually felt like the first meeting didn't go so well for me because I sometimes directors don't always um, they're, they're sometimes a bit closed because they're just trying to work you out and they're trying to almost see what you can bring to them so I was I did a lot of talking and then we got another opportunity to meet and I felt that perhaps if there was more interest in me and Rose started discussing more of her references and they were all tonal references rather than visual I think there was just a lot of kind of like, it was this was a debut film, this is my debut film. I guess we were careful at the beginning to make sure that we were both, you know, we were making the right collaboration. And then in during pre-production, I just got a few tonal references, which were Raising His Baby, Persona, Repulsion, Notes from the Underground book, which I think was just there to subconsciously build a kind of reference which was there to help us throughout the way because obviously it's really important to do a lot of your homework and pre-production and planning but when you're on set and you're shooting you don't really have time to look at the references that you've built you kind of just need to work from instinct and I suppose the tone that's been set in all those weeks beforehand. Yeah exactly those early conversations get built upon over and over again so hopefully you know if you've had 10 weeks of conversations that by the time you get to the set all of the decision making is much easier your instincts can take over and you can just find the frame without having to overanalyze anything. Yeah and and you kind of build your own sort of secret little language as well and like I was so grateful for Rose because she gave me so much time in pre-production. I think I was given three weeks of official prep but then i I gave like an extra five weeks of my own time and we just sat in an office and threw ideas at each other and we kind of I mean there were it was a very sort of crafted and heavily sort of composed film and that there was a very little that we left to the actual day so we did shot this quite intensely we even when there was like an idea that one of us was suggesting and the other couldn't really see it we would act out and block the scenes using each other with like a phone in a very small office and but there's only so far you can go you know I think sometimes you don't truly know the language of your film until you're actually on set that first day with the production design and your actors and the lighting. And that's when it suddenly clicks into place and there is a kind of feeling rather than the sort of, you know, looking back at your notes. I mean, it's helpful to look back at notes, of course, but then I think there's, there's something that kind of switches on inside both of you. 
Yeah, I think one of the downsides to having prep of any kind is that usually the director has a very limited rehearsal time. And so there's a lot of assumptions that you have to make as filmmakers as to how your cast are going to respond to a space and how that's going to work. Exactly. And so you try to build some really strong foundations in early prep that then get built upon and built upon and built upon and then suddenly you're off and flying. Yeah. So it's interesting the thing you were saying about Rose's tonal references. Mm. My big takeaway from the film is how cohesive every element of the project is. Mm. It's a very homogenous mix of soundscape, production design, editorial, and, and your work. How did everybody come together? What were the conversations? Well, I think Rose, you know, did a really good job of uh, assembling the team we had. There was a lot of discussions that went. I mean, to be honest, I think the richness of the image really comes down to the production design uh, by pulling out a production designer. And yeah, for example, we actually were able to do some screen tests, which was great. So where we could check our costume against our, you know, because we went quite bold with our dark interiors. Um, certainly the living room with the dark green, which turned out to be an absolute dream for a DP because it just enhanced, you know, because there wasn't any other light bouncing around and I just worked mostly with natural light. And then on the darker days, I just I pumped in a, a bit of extra light. But yeah, I mean, I tried to get away with as little lighting as possible so there were a lot of discussions with what type of practical light and where it should be positioned and there was uh, there was a lot of back and forth those kinds of things but it was kind of like a debut feature for many of us for many of the HODs so we were you know all had a kind of a childlike sense of wonder that we all worked really hard we were very excited and despite it being quite a, a bleak film it was there was a lot of fun and excitement on set. Yeah, I think when there's a, a collective of people that are all working towards their same life goal of the yeah. debut feature, there's a, a real strength of collaboration. Yeah. So one of the things I really love about the film is how you keep the contrast level consistent so that the day scenes are as moody and thoughtful as the night scenes. You know, there's this strong key from one side of a room that dominates the faces. Where did that come from? Was that conversation between you and Rose? How did you set about setting the look yeah I guess the way it looks came down to a lot of things really because I think a if you look at the architecture of the building there's a very large old Victorian house and they, every room had a, a large window with lots of natural light coming in so that just felt like the natural way to go and I think there was a sort of dogmatic approach to it it was like well it's daylight and you know undeni undeniably it's kind of like one of the more sort of beautiful ways of lighting a room for a window and with the dark interiors it just kind of enhanced that kind of divine church-like effect and I kind of approached it like a like a photographer would I felt there was a lot of composed shots so every shot in the scene would almost feel like a, a photograph and I tried to get away with as little lighting as possible not out of laziness but just uh, trying to work as simplistic and naturalistic as possible so whenever we could I, I lit for a window and it just so happened this location the windows were all in the right places and then we kind of um, planned the production design around where the window should be yeah and the dark interiors helped with the contrast so even though there was an awful lot of light coming through a massive window there was a natural fall off a natural kind of contrast ratio that happened we didn't I mean we rarely had to add any more negative feel to a scene it was just it was just already happening but it's also like a lot of my earlier work in the short films and commercials and music videos I always liked to to work with darkness and shadows I'd, I just always had a kind of a way of photographing a face and that's kind of the central the first thing I look at really is that how does a how will we sculpt a human face within this scene 
and yeah i'm always kind of trying to look at the shadows and yeah yeah, it's interesting you say that because there's like an, a variation in your portraiture technique between side light and edge light and a smallest amount of bounce. I really love the moment towards the end of the film where they come together in the bedroom and there's just a practical on beside the bed um, just before the worst thing ever can happen happens. <laughs> and there's the tiniest amount of wraparound light on Jennifer's face and the hardest little edge light on Morford's. And it's really beautiful and terrifying at the same time. And it's just the right level of tone for that moment. Yeah, and that was uh, that was lit from the practical light. So if we had had a different table lamp in there with a shade which didn't throw light out from the side, it wouldn't have given us that effect. So we had this uh, sort of glass orb, I think, which threw light in every direction. And that became our, that was our practical and our key light. And it just meant that you could... I remember moving it like millimeters per shot, you know, and I just needed it to kind of, and then we r- rose it up just so it could, the light could throw over the pillow and just light that through that tiny gap, because actually that's a difficult shot to do with two faces close together. Certainly if, if you don't want to kind of front light it, I and mean, it just, just felt like a really tender and scary way to go, but kind of got obsessed with kind of lighting faces with a sliver. <laughs> the more we got into the production, I was like, how, how little can I get away with kind of lighting I think the darkness kind of took over most of the face. And, and, and Morphid had these incredible eyes where I, without even trying, there, we always had these incredible eye light. I think someone picked that up when we had our first screening and it was like, all those eye lights, where'd they come from? I was like, I didn't intend to do that. They just naturally happened. And I think Morphid had these like incredibly dark orbs which just somehow picked up the reflections in the room it was just yeah it was incredible and sometimes you just have a little sliver on the cheek and an eyelight and that's all you need you can read the emotion and yeah exactly how far behind an actor's head can you put a light before it stops reflecting in their in their eye or how low can you yeah. put it that's the thing is that the world of thriller photography is quite a creatively free space where with the portraiture what you're looking to show is a dark side of someone's personality so you're always pushing towards edge lighting and side lighting and up lighting in a way that channels sort of film noir techniques. Certainly repulsion as a as a reference has got all of that in spades. There's a lot of sort of religious iconography hidden in the film, almost like an Easter egg. You know, there's a lot of crucifix style poses from characters or placement of props to help create a crucifix idea. There's halo ideas. How did you and Rose talk about those? Yeah, actually, they were, I mean, they were all Rose's ideas, really. And we tried to build them into the frame as subtly as possible, some more than others. But I'm glad you noticed the halos. There was a few props, like uh, there was like, I think, a clock and round mirrors that we placed above, which was framed on the wall behind Maud, which would, you know, act as, yeah, like the saint's halo. And in another situation, like you might see that as, as like bad framing, but actually, you know, it was symbolic. I was unsure at the beginning, but then I kind of just thought, yeah, there's just like a hidden meaning to this and it has to be has to be done. So we used it um, on a couple of times. I think it was once in the kitchen. And again, in the uh, bar, um, there was a kind of a mirror on the far wall. We actually lit, lit it up a little bit as well. And I just thought, yeah, I was, I was kind of hesitant. I was I thought, I thought, is this going a bit too far? Is it kind of uh, overdoing the idea? Is it not subtle enough? But I think we I think we uh, yeah, I think it was OK. Those moments are brief and because they happen in environments where the characters are naturally inhabiting, you feel them as a coincidence rather than feeling them as a deliberate choice. 
yeah that, that's exactly what I think what Rose wanted to do and we were uh, yeah we, we managed to just trying to think of any others that were out there we had uh, a few I don't know if you remember it was more just more camera angles but it was a few kind of quite quite high angle shots looking down and that was we called that our, our god angle so it was it was a uh, yeah I mean in one sense you can look at it as quite a sort of a cool stylized looking shot and the other actually had a, a feeling that she might have been watched down on by god um which we didn't want to overuse too much but it felt right yeah it's like that um there's a great book here we go getting reasonably over intellectual about it but there's a great book by paul schrader called transcendental style in film you ever heard of that it rose i mean that would have been a great piece of reference for you but yeah he analyzes the work of yashijiro Uzu, robert bresson and carl dreyer in terms of their use of god Ah. in in terms of compositional choices and and editorial choices yeah i wouldn't be surprised if rose hadn't read that but it's um yeah certainly paul schrider was was used had come up on a few occasions certainly because he wrote taxi driver which was a big reference for us as well yeah which has that great epiphany top shot at the end of the murder (laughs) sequence where revenge and retribution has been served and there's Travis Christ-like on the sofa, covered in blood. Yeah. Compositionally, I think the work that you've done is astonishing. Is not only is operating sort of narratively led, but it also helps to create the tone by always modelling the light in the right place. Yeah, I think it's really beautiful when you can actually see the the you know the the light source within. You know, if you're purely lighting the scene with film lights, you, you can't actually the film lights have to be outside of the frame but if your light source is a window or a practical light i feel and then the, the actor can then can then move across that source and and then get as close as they want to it you can you can go a lot further with lighting i feel so i try to build in the lighting practically as much as possible just going back on what you're saying with the, the the kind of way what we photographed i mean formally on commercials like the way everything has to work you know everything because it kind of lacks narrative everything is more about the aesthetic and you have to kind of work in an outrageously aesthetic way but with films there's something I, I realized on this was that you know you have to shoot in a way which enhances the story and sometimes i mean choosing a shot which is less beautiful but it just so happened it worked out on this film that you know most of the time we could have both I mean the aesthetic and the story kind of went hand in hand it was you know it was a a visually a a subjective story you know we had to enter and fall into the world of Maud so there was a lot of sort of visual storytelling involved as well. Going back to what you were saying about the light source of the window in frame, because I feel like it naturally pushes the contrast higher and yeah. it naturally makes the skin tones feel darker and the shadow side yeah. feel even darker still because you've got this spread of contrast. And as soon as you exclude the highlight, suddenly you're into you know a flatter world. I think that's that's it. That's the sort of I think that's the secret to kind of dark image making, and that is you do need you do need highlights within the scene. Um, otherwise it becomes a quite a muddied image, you know, and there's just, there's no contrast and whether it's having a, you know, a super bright kind of overexposed window or wall, and then you can have your character silhouetted in front of that in complete darkness. Um, and that's kind of, if you look at it, you've, you've actually got a very bright thing within the scenes So that's not underexposing, but you're creating that feeling of darkness by that use of kind of contrast. Just going back to the beginning, those of you that aren't aware and haven't seen St. Maud, the idea behind the film is that a nurse who is looking after a sick patient slowly undergoes a nervous breakdown whilst also reveling in a closeness to God. 
So as well as the tone of a horror film, you also have this disintegrating mental health of your lead character. What were the things that you and Rose were talking about in order to help with that disintegration of reality? I suppose it was a very subjective film and we had to kind of fall and descend with Maud as the film went on. So I felt that the framing needed to be quite tight. So we kept the vice pretty tight in terms of framing. Felt quite claustrophobic and felt there wasn't really a lot of wide shots that were used. It just had to feel like you were caught in, uh, subconsciously caught in uh, and trapped within Maud's world and her kind of vision. And a lot of things that you see, you're not sure if are actually real or part of her imagination. We touched on things which were surreal and not necessarily, you know, like the beetle, for example. And when she crushes her hands through the guy's chest that she brought home from the club, it's just all, you know, you never know whether it's real or not. That suspension of, of disbelief, how far inside someone's mind are you? And then as each moment reoccurs, you suddenly see that she's, descended another layer and another layer into into herself Mm -hmm. um how did you um how did you work with like the sfx team like there's a amazing whirlpool moment in the beer glass how did you pre-plan all of those i'm assuming they were all rendered in the script how did you bring those to life? That was actually uh, in-camera effects. They were uh, little spinny motors, I think, for like toy aeroplanes. It was driven by a motor magnetically through the table. Yeah, all of, all of the spinny pints of beer were actually practically done. And then I think uh, VFX might have tidied up some foam spinning on top. But we were kind of running out of time. It was, it was classic. We were in, you know, we were shooting on location and there was maybe 30 slates we had to get through. And that was left to the end of the day. So that was, that was quite rushed. But we, we, I think we managed to pull that one off. But yeah, there was, um, in terms of SFX, there wasn't a huge amount. I mean, there was a few sort of stunts and we didn't really have an SFX department. Our electrical team was doing all the the smoke and haze within the scene, uh, which we had in pretty much every shot. It's interesting that despite the fact that it is a horror movie, there is very, very small amounts of blood and prosthetic usage. Yeah, and that's the thing. I guess when I read this, it didn't really jump out as a horror film. And I, I've never really been that interested in horrors, uh, but I saw this more as a psychological thriller. Uh, and it's, it's suggestive in its scariness. And that's what I thought was really smart. And I think that there's a few films out there where you can, you know, you, you're on the edge of your seat until there's the jump scares. But it's not the more you reveal, the less sort of scary it becomes. So I guess it's more of a, yeah, a psychological thriller with horror elements and not really any of the kind of horror tropes that in a classical sense that you might have known in other films I think that's kind of what I liked about it so much because I never saw myself working on a horror film at all but now I think I've changed my mind I love it (laughs) it definitely is a horror thriller hybrid in the same vein as like you said earlier on Rosemary's Baby Black Swan The Exorcist yeah it punctuates with jump scares but actually the horror is much more internalized Mm mm-hmm so yeah, so I was going to just ask a little bit about the logistics of things. So for instance, how many days did you have to shoot and what camera system, what lens system did you use? How did your crew consist? Yeah, so this was um, scheduled quite kindly for debut filmmakers. We had uh, we shot for five day weeks. So we, we had a full weekend off to recover, which we actually really did need. So we shot over four weeks and then we did an extra week of pickups or extra five day pickups a few months after. And we shot all of the interiors in Highgate in London. 
So it was super close to home. And then all the exteriors was obviously in Scarborough up in Yorkshire. So it felt nice. Like it felt like, you know, I could I could cycle to work and uh, get home at a reasonable time. And yeah, because it was so close to London, I was able to to bring on board some of my longtime collaborators, Ed Tucker, my focus puller. I had uh, Tim Jordan lined up as a gaffer, but he uh, broke his foot a week before production. So his uh, best boy, Ben Manwaring, took over. We had a, a great team. It was a lovely team. In terms of camera, in pre-production, we were planning to shoot on 16mm. We felt it was the right don't know, it just felt that because even though the film is set in c- contemporary times, there was a, like a, a timeless quality to it that we wanted. I was really like heavily inspired by the film Carol by Ed Latch- uh, Edward Latchman shot. I just felt like the aesthetic was perfect. There was something about the texture, the way that the image fizzed and just the tender portraiture throughout the, you know, with two people talking in rooms. It was just yeah, that was a, a personal reference I kept coming back to. And um, when I learned that was shot in 16 mil, I just felt that was that was right for this project. But we couldn't make it work for budget reasons, obviously. So we shot on the Alexa Mini and we had to shoot spherical. Originally, our aspect ratio was going to be 166, but then we later decided for 239. Whenever I shoot spherical, whenever I shoot any anything digitally, I always lean towards uh, vintage lenses. And in this case, we shot on the K35s, which were rehoused by PNS Technic, which Panavision London have a very good set, which I kind of now use in all my projects, all of my spherical projects. And the goal was really to make it look as much like film as possible. So I kept, you know, referencing and going back to Carol, which was the more extreme version. So we were trying to build that into the production design and uh, carry that on with our colorist, Rob Pizzi at Goldcrest. But yeah, it was it was kind of ideal. It was an ideal first feature logistically to work close to home, mostly interior sets, people talking in rooms, lots of kind of natural lighting. It was definitely like a, a lovely feeling waking up in the morning and being able to cycle down the road up quite a high hill. <laughs> up the big hill on the way to work, down the big hill on the way home. The right way around, hopefully. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love the use of the K35s. I'm assuming you probably upset your focus puller and was pushing them towards 1.5 as frequently as possible for that extra level of softness and, and the fact that if you light in a very contrasty way and have that little bit of smoke and then have those lenses are you know pushed a little wide open, there's that extra little contrast nick that you get to, to soften faces and soften the edges of frame. That's exactly it. I think that that's why they're just so perfect and ideal for photographing skin in close-ups because I don't know, I just can't, honestly can't explain why they're so good. But And they work differently to a modern lens with diffusion on the front. There's something, there is a kind of, I guess like a sort of, I mean, the, the way that they soften the image internally is it's done so naturally and subtly. So it's it doesn't lose overall sharpness. It just has a almost like the edges are softer and it yeah and if you work at the right you know unfortunately for ed my focus puller he was up against it most shots and sometimes i might stop down if i felt like he was having a bad day (laughs) yeah he he did have have quite a challenge but yeah they work beautifully just like a you know either wide open or or a hair just a hair closed somewhere in between t2 and you know t1.3 yeah it's always the mark of a masochist is when you pull out the nd9 for the interior (laughs) and the focus pillars oh thanks very much welcome to today (laughs) the rest of the day is going to be really painful so in terms of the lighting department how many sparks did you have how well personed were you 
I mean, it was, it was a low budget film, so we had quite a small team, but at the same time, we had small locations. Some days we, you know, we did hardly any lighting and sometimes we needed, uh, we basically set the tone from the very first day, you know, everything was kind of quite heavily crafted and when there wasn't enough shape in the room, we would have to like bring in a series of flags. So we had Gaffer, Best Boy, and maybe I think we had two or three sparks. But yeah, like we we're saying, it was the, the small locations were actually harder to work with more people because everyone was kind of funneling in and out of one door. Certainly the basement set, uh, which we shot in winter for 10 days. So we were all kind of backs to the walls trying to get around. The, you know, we, we couldn't, we didn't have the time to kind of just let each department come in one by one. We were all working and attacking the set and moving it around every, every time we did a new shot. So, yeah. And then just to take you back a little bit, we know where you were shooting commercials just before embarking on same ward. But what was your route in? I mean, the thing I wanted to touch on was that, like I really wanted to talk about actually when I was working with you in some of the early days because because um, there's, there's lots of people who are aspiring DPs and they're like, hey man, I'm in I'm in uni, I'm just finished uni, I want to be a cinematographer. How do I do it? And, you know, and I, I keep telling them, I'm like, well, I, I can only tell you my route and that route was you know I, I i was a technician and i came through this and i think you've got to do your time as a technician and learn and absorb as much as you can analyze and find mentors and like you know you were one of the dps the earliest stage of my career and you know I, I took a lot from the shoots that we worked on together and but yeah there is a lot of um you do have a lot of conversations about how do you become you what I found interesting about talking to cinematographers in the last sort of 20 years of being connected with the film industry. And it's amazing how not two people have the same story. Yeah. So I started out as an electrician outside of the film industry. I always wanted to work in film as a child, but the realist inside me was like, get a proper job. There wasn't any kind of prospects from where I grew up or I wasn't doing very well at school. So I never felt like I was going to go to university. So it always just felt like a, you know, a dream job. So I kind of buried the idea uh, and I started an apprenticeship as an electrician. But by the age of 19, uh, I was kind of getting a bit fed up with that. And I grew a bit more confident to ask myself what I really wanted to do. And uh, that was to work in film in any capacity. But quite a long story short, I managed to find myself on a feature film in 2007. It was called Chemical Wedding. Um, I urge you not to watch it. (laughs) It's not a great film. (laughs) The experience of working on that film was, it was amazing. I I finally sort of discovered like where I was meant to be. I remember my first day on set, I was in awe of the chaos and military operation of different skills coming together, like fighting the clock. The whole experience was like, you know, trying to jump on a moving train. But at the centre of of it all was, uh, you know, the DP. Uh, I think the DP was Brian Hurley, who had a a calm demeanour, half technician, half storyteller. I didn't even know his job existed before this point. And I was fascinated. I was just really drawn to that role. But yeah, I kind of spent about five years in the lighting department working as an electrician or or a young gaffer. I really kind of surrendered myself to my job. I, I loved it. I loved that I was able to finally work in an industry that I cared so much about. And also just just the craft was, was something I, I deeply enjoyed. But I, I also felt like a, I had a creative outlet working with lighting, being tactile with something and being part of that image making process, certainly because I, photography has always been a hobby of mine as a child. So just making interesting pictures and images was enough for me. But I suppose as the years went on, I, I slowly started to discover what I wanted deep down was to be a cinematographer myself. But I never really had the confidence. But I guess it was through the uh, 
the rich music scene in London. There's lots of music videos being made, low, low budget or zero budget. And I, I have to thank my friend Nick Rutter for giving me my first opportunity to shoot his videos. Uh, I'd met him on a documentary that he was shooting and I, I think he could see some potential in my photography. And uh, we, we really got on and yeah, he was he set up this video. I think I can't remember who, who the artist was now, but he was like, I need to shoot this on film. And I was obviously completely out of my depth. Uh, by that point, I, the only way I could judge exposure was by looking at a, a monitor on the side of a, a Panasonic camera. It was very sort of rudimentary cinematography skills. So I had to learn very quickly how to shoot on a ARRI 416, I think. And I think I remember I was ringing every DP I knew at the time, like agonizing like as the days before that first shoot came up. And I think I spoke to Matt Fox and he was like, look, Ben, at the end of the day, you've got to be a real idiot to mess up film. And I think that just enhanced the pressure <laughs> even further because I thought okay if I mess this up I am going to be an idiot and it's all over but don't worry I can still do my jobs as an electrician that's fine but it didn't of course and like after a few agonizing days waiting for the rushes to come through we saw that you know we saw uh, stills from those rushes and it was just like it, it really hit me it was just like magic it was just like and I was addicted from that point onwards and something woke up inside me that I was not only could I do this I was yeah I just uh the, the creative side, I guess, woke up inside me and I and I just kind of, I had quite low expectations at the beginning. I was like, look, I'm just going to do this as a hobby. I'm going to do it for fun, a, sh- a short film here, a music video there. And it just kind of grew up until the point where I was contacted by an agent. I got signed and I was told not to be a gaffer anymore. And it kind of just, I guess, snowballed. After that first experience, how did you find going back to gaffering for somebody else that first time? By that point, I was still, I was, you know, I was kind of unsure whether it was for me. I like I. I guess I wasn't still totally confident in my own abilities that I could do it because this was a music video where we grabbed a camera, asked a few favours from friends. Uh, we drove into the countryside, Norwich, I think, on the, on the coastline, and we shot this video. It was very sort of low-key, very relaxed. And then the moment you go back to a proper shoot where you've got like a very scary sort of first AD and like, you know, a lot of money riding on stuff. I just thought I didn't know if I had had it in me to be like, you know, responsible for all these crew and all this money. It, it was a very sort of slow progression from that point onwards. And I think it's all about getting rid of that imposter syndrome, I guess. Trying to develop that inner confidence so that you can refer to yourself as a cinematographer. It's, yeah. it's quite a big step, isn't it? If you've been engaged in the film industry for a period of time, I mean, was there one particular production, one commercial, one music video where you were like, okay, that's it, I'm done. From now on, I'm a cinematographer. Yeah, I think actually there there was actually. The second video I did with Nick Rutter was for an artist called Lapalux. And we shot, it was the first time we shot with anamorphic lenses, the Kawa anamorphics, which are really, really funky and amazing. And we had an incredible location in Peckham. I think it was a working man's club the first time it was shot in. And it was incredibly absurd and bizarre. I had a guy walk around in a, in, a, in a black gimp suit. And so his suit just picked out all of this. It was a very sort of colourfully lit video. Uh, we had a very good colourist on board. And it was the first time I'd made something controlled. And I just felt that all of the decisions we'd made beforehand kind of revealed themselves in, in the end product. And it was, it was just a video that I was like so happy with. And I remember... Uh, more experienced DPs sending me messages and emails and people getting in touch. And I knew that it was, it was definitely a, a, a bigger leap forward. It just caught the attention of other directors. And I, but I think it was boringly the job where I knew it was going to work out for me was first time I did a commercial with a decent budget for EE. 
the director was Thomas Bryant. And it was the first time I could employ a steady cam with, you know, a tracking vehicle. It was a five-day shoot. We, you know, were staying in hotels all across the country and felt like I was professionally capable and was able to, yeah, I don't know. I just, I felt like a DP for the first time. It was a quite a nice experience. And yeah, that was the thing that really kind of, I think, sealed the deal for me, being able to be responsible with other people's money. <laughs> That's the other thing is self-confidence is one thing, but also the confidence to deal with spending other people's money wisely and being able to assist other people in telling their stories. I think that's a big leap of faith that you make in yourself and other people make in you. Yeah. So 2020 has been a, a fairly difficult year for filmmakers and for filmmaking in general, not to put too fine a point on it. The release of St. Maud has been truncated somewhat by the process. I saw it in a cinema about six months ago now um, in a very limited release before cinemas closed down again. The film is due out sometime in 2021 now. But what has been next for you? What have you been up to since St. Maud wrapped? I just shot another film. I just come off another film called The Origin, which was shot for 29 days in the northwest coast of Scotland during winter. And yeah, it's it's a horror film set in the Stone Age. I think that's all I'm allowed to say. But it was a real Herzog filmmaking experience. I mean, the level of outdoor, the attention uh, to detail of the outdoor equipment that all the crew had, and we had to work in a in a quarantine bubble. That's the only way we could make it work. It was actually um, funded by Sony. I guess there's a lot of projects that have fallen through because of the pandemic, but because we could make this work in, in a relatively small sized crew, we booked out a hotel called the Gallock Hotel with 70 bedrooms for all the cast and crew. And we became a quarantine bubble. We had, we were not allowed to leave the hotel unless it was for work, but we had, you know, the hotel had its own grounds. So it had a nice beach and a garden. Uh, so yeah, we worked through the kind of Scottish and London uh, second lockdown kind of in the middle of nowhere. It was a, quite a unique sort of experience in terms of putting a load of people together in this hotel was a uh, a social experiment you could say uh, but it turned out to be wonderful you know and even though we had to work through some of the worst storms I've ever there was just no refuge I mean there were obviously we chose locations which were 30 minute hike or whatever um, and they were perfectly reasonable to shoot in on the reckeys which with our fair weather uh the moment the storm hits it was it just became one of the hardest things i've ever had to work through the storms even had names so yeah that says it all really it sounds brutal it was so windy obviously our easy ups blew away that was the first thing that was that would happen on you know in the morning that the easy easy up would blow over and we're like okay cool because we had like so because of where we are in, in the sort of northern hemisphere we'd have much much less daylight hours so we would work continuous working days Sometimes we'd, they'd give us half an hour lunch, but the coaching was amazing. But there was just like, you know, a, a mossy rock to sit on. And then after 10 minutes, you get cold. So you might as well just start shooting and make the most out of the daylight hours. But I've got to say it was it was very difficult, but that only kind of brought out so much humor and warmth and camaraderie. It was it was an amazing filmmaking experience. And yeah, I, I kind of wish I could go back, really. It was it was incredible. And how did you find modelling the light and adhering to tone? I'm assuming there's quite a lot of day exterior. Yeah, apart from two of the days we had, um, I guess was our studio days, which we converted a big barn and created cave sets. Apart from those days, it was all natural lighting. And when we were outside in, in the tundra, I'm proud to say we didn't have a single sunny shot in the whole film. The quality of light was overcast and soft, but there was always such an interesting 
sky you know there's always like a dark cloud kind of brooding or there's always mountains used as a framing device um so it was trying to bring in as much negative as much as possible we maximized the daylight hours and worked around that there's quite a lot of fire lit scenes and we did some tests before with sfx and actually apart from a few occasions the fire itself worked really well as a light source i was kind of surprised how much light it gave off and apart from a few instances where they're looking away from the fire and it's impossible to light their face i had to bring in a sky panel or something like that but yeah it felt like 95 percent of the shoot was natural lighting we had a very dense pine forest we were shooting in and in and after we could only shoot in it like an hour after sunrise and then even then my light meter was reading 0.7 i was i was quite nervous throughout the whole forest section of the shoot because if we had a really moody kind of rainy day it, you know our daylight hours were limited and our schedule was based on sunrise to sunset so it was quite difficult um i was very close to bringing out a light in that situation in the in the dark forest but i just thought at that point you're just going to really feel how it can just start to feel really artificial when you're bringing out big lights in daylight exteriors i just i never buy it so yeah a few of the scenes might might feel a bit fizzy how underexposed they are but i'm sure i'll add to the scene in some way yeah i think channeling that naturalism is one of your great skills so you definitely made the right decision to leave the lamp on the truck Plus, it was like a 30-minute walk from the truck to bring up a 9K or something. It would have been a pretty cruel thing for me to give to the electrical department. <laughs> it's always great when you undergo that process and then turn it off. Yeah. I've got a good technique around that, actually. If instead of turning it off, if you just pan it 90 degrees, it still feels like, to them, it's doing something, but actually, you're not lighting your set. You are such a big, <laughs> such a big meanie. Unbelievable. You can tell you were once a gaffer. Just pan it to the right, and then 10 minutes later, then you turn it off sounds like a great adventure all of the films that i have made where it's like you and a team of people collaborating against the elements have, have always been these wonderful team building experiences mm. you know, stretched out over six weeks or whatever mm-hmm. so looking back to saint maud so the film was shot in 2018 hopefully there's a bit of distance if you were to go back to right to the very beginning what would you tell yourself back before the start of the film um chill out it's gonna be okay (laughs) Uh, (laughs) it's a very good question what would i tell myself i would tell myself do you know what i don't i don't know if i would though because i think it can break the it's like if you make something good like a music video or commercial and another director approaches you and says i love what you did on that job i'd like you to apply that to this one with a different story it never works out as well and i think there's some I think sometimes you can do your best work by discovering it as you're going along, you know, that kind of uh, serendipitous kind of leaving it to serendipity just by the unknown. I think you kind of work sharper that way. So I don't know if I would tell myself anything because it might burst that precarious bubble. Yeah, I don't think you should. There's a lot of questions that you have on your mind when you're making a film. Like you were saying, filmmaking is a collaboration of people who are each making thousands of decisions every day. And any one of those decisions by a process can end up deviating the film in all sorts of different directions. So I think the decision making that you guys came to on St. Maud was, um, was, uh, was the right one. You did a great job. The only thing I wish I did have was more time. And I think, but I think everyone's going to say that regardless of how big your production is, I always feel like I'm running out of time. I'm under pressure. I could have done better if I'd had more, uh, five more minutes or something like that. But I kind of get the feeling that that's 
that's always the case. <laughs> I don't know if you if you can shed any light on that, but I just, yeah, I just always feel like time. I don't ever have enough time. Yeah, absolutely. Like it doesn't it doesn't matter how big or small the film, it doesn't matter how much money that you have, the clock is always ticking and the time always runs out. Yeah, and even if you have three days to shoot a two page scene or half a day to shoot a two page scene, the end result is the same that you feel like you, you didn't have enough time. I mean, here's a question. This is the thing that I find interesting, mostly because I did some of it this year. When you come back to shoot pickups on a film that you have shot principal photography a year before or nine months before, because you as a human being have moved on and your artistic sense has moved on, I always find it very interesting to re-channel the thoughts of the principal photography. How did you find coming back to St. Maud to do that week of pickups? Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, I think it's uh, halfway through a feature, you've kind of like put yourself into this mindset, which is uh, really hard to kind of re-engage. But I also think I was, while making the film, I was actually quite, you kind of naturally become quite tired and you're not able to be objective on all your planning. You kind of have no reference of where you are, how well you're doing. But after some time has passed and you see the assembly and you see where you've got to kind of place those pickups, all of a sudden you have this objective nature like oh, okay that's brilliant i just need to insert a shot here sort of there and then being back on set assembled with the same crew who are, you know it's, it gives you another opportunity to kind of because every time you finish a film you're like oh that was such an amazing crew there was it was a beautiful kind of family feeling and that's all gone but then that all kind of came back again we got the band back together and it was a lot of fun and because i'd already seen the assembly i was very excited and i thought actually we've made something quite cool here i had this kind of i suppose i had this confidence in what we were doing before was actually the right thing whereas i was kind of am i going too dark am i creating too many contrast images here but we saw it all work um so i was able to kind of have this freshness of energy and I, th- I think I was able to move much more quickly actually when they did the first cut it didn't qualify as a feature film I think it was only 73 minutes long and you probably need about 80 minutes for it to qualify as a feature film so what we shot in the pickups in the four or five days we ended up making up 25 percent of the film so we actually shot not just inserts but whole new scenes as well but I didn't find any trouble in kind of getting back into the headspace I think having a fresh bit of energy was was a good thing yeah, I think it's very, very useful to come back and bring fresh energy. So just for anyone that has seen the film, what were some of the scenes that you shot with nine months difference? Um, I believe it was the entire God scene where God is actually speaking to Maud. I don't know if you remember that, where the beetle runs out the sink and towards her shrine. It's quite an important story beat. Yeah, so that whole scene came into it. The very last shot of the scene where Maud is on fire, that was her against green screen because we did actually shoot a stunt person on fire on Scarborough Beach but because of a few logistical problems uh, like the tide coming in quite quickly a little bit of bad acting from some of the supporting artists and us only having one shot it we didn't quite nail the ending shot so we actually shot someone for real on the beach in Scarborough and yeah it just didn't quite work so we had to basically ditch that and reshoot it seemed to just be more effective as a kind of mid shot someone on fire just a couple of seconds there's a quite a brutal moment at the end there yeah (laughs) in a very interesting juxtaposed kind of way where you're ethereal and transcending with Maud one moment and then descending to hell the next um yeah it's beautifully cut beautifully conceptualized yeah that was the tricky thing for VFX because they needed to create a flame which didn't this is the magical flame before she's actually on fire Uh, a flame which didn't feel too fake that it looked cheesy and one that didn't look too real 
to not cutting with the real flames. And I think a lot of the imagery was based on the William Blake references throughout the film and originally was thinking of something a lot more kind of 2D, something that was more imagined in your state of mind or something that was directly taken out of a book, the William Blake book, which was given to Maud by Amanda, where she kind of got fixated in the flames, I guess, in the first place. But yeah, I think working on the beach was by far the most challenging part of the film. The sun was continuously in and out. It was front lit all the time. And the tide times didn't match with the, the sunrise times. And we had such such short daylight hours in that on that day in particular. It was it was really hard. And a lot of stuff riding on that. On, it was a single day on that beach. So yeah, it was a lot to shoot. Yeah, and with always the way with these single days, you are, you're dealt a set of cards. You're dealt a hand. I just want to conclude really in saying... Ben Forsman, what an incredible piece of work St. Maud is. I think you should be incredibly proud. I would love to have waited 10 years to have this conversation, but I couldn't wait that But I couldn't wait that long. So I just wanted to talk to you about it now to find out your side of things. I think it's a really, really incredible piece of work. You thoroughly deserve all of the praise that is coming your way, and hopefully even more so when the film gets released and gets seen by a much wider audience. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Chris. Pleasure. So, please like or subscribe or any other thing you'd like to do with a podcast. But most importantly, join me again for the next conversation. Thanks again. <laughs>